Today's episode is a conversation I shared with an artist friend named Tim Mills. He and I both share a love of clay. He's a potter and now lives in Thailand with his family. He's a brilliant problem solver, and we had a great time talking about the creative process, the rabbit trails involved, the experiments, the power of failures, just a lot of growth mindset goodness that I think is going to really bless you. You're listening to the Growing Creative Podcast, and I'm your host, Jane Boutwell. I'm an artist and a creative coach. This is a space that will nurture your heart and empower you to pursue your creative calling, whatever that may be. So I am very excited to get a chance to have a conversation in real time, although it feels like a bit twilight zone-ish when I'm at the very end of a day and you're starting a day, but I've got um, Tim Mills here, who is an artist friend, who is a potter, but I can't wait to hear more about the different types of art that you do. I'm looking at Tim on his screen and he has this beautiful painting of a tree coming out of the wall that almost looks like it's growing out of his head. And if you <laughs> looked at any of my growing creative imagery that I have designed for like the growing creative path, it's all plants growing out of people's heads. <laughs> so I love That's the imagery great. of that. Love it. <laughs> but Tim grew up in Georgia, right? I mean, you grew up right around where I am now. Well, I, I, you know, I've lived kind of based out of Georgia for over over half my life now, but I actually grew up in a military family. So moving around quite a bit. My father was in the army and yeah, I was born in New York, lived a number of places before he retired from the army and we moved to Atlanta and that was 1990. So it's been a while, but uh, we moved around a good bit growing up. So I, I do consider myself kind of from from the Atlanta area though. We've had a lot of history there now. Mm -hmm. But growing up all around, so not quite as rooted in this Georgia red clay as I kind right. of imagined. Right, right. Wow. I mean, I was born in New York. I was actually born in New York. You know, you've heard the term army brat. Well, my father was actually teaching at West Point Military Academy when I was born. I was actually born at the military academy. So I think I'm 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 a true army brat. Maybe as, as uh, much an army brat as you can be. The yeah, the brattiest of all the brattiest. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So we moved up and down the East Coast with his different assignments. We lived in Korea. We lived in Israel for different seasons. But yeah, we moved to Atlanta in 1990. So you had and, some early yeah. experiences with international life because now you and your wife and your three kids are in Thailand and have that's been right. for 16 yes. years. That's right. Yeah, we moved here in 2006. And of course, you and I got to know each other prior to that when we were in community together in Atlanta for those years. And uh, yeah, we were married in 1999 and we're in the Atlanta area for about seven years before we moved here to Thailand. We work with a, a Christian nonprofit that helps international Christians to establish churches in their, in their cities. So primarily focusing on urban centers of the world. So there's been a group with our organization working here in Thailand since about 1999, actually about that same time. And Rihanna, my wife, and I came on a couple of trips 
2001 and 2002, just 12 day trips or so with in town community church, the church that we're, you know, both part of at that time. And that was a beginning, I guess, of our journey of moving here and living here and being a part of this work here. So yeah, it's been 16 years now. Our, our daughter was two when we moved here. She's in her second year of university now. Mm-hmm. And then we have two sons that are in 10th grade, eighth grade, respectively. And then my wife actually teaches here at an international school as well. So it's been, it's been a wonderful season of life to be living here over a third of my life now has, yeah, has been lived incredible here. That's incredible how that time yeah. <laughs> just flies. It doesn't seem yes. that long ago. I know. I remember being so struck by the pottery that you were making at the time, you know, mm. you were making those tea bowls and they had, you know, just that simplicity that's so beautiful about Asian mm-hmm. ceramic work. And so it just made so much sense to, uh, to me that you would be moving right. to somewhere that yes. is right along those lines. Yes. But I would love to jump back a little bit. I love to hear about people's creative worlds when they're really young. Mm -hmm. I just feel Mm -hmm. like it's always a sense of where their adult creativity is growing out of. So I would love to hear just a couple of snippets, maybe a little childhood memory or just those moments of feeling the most alive creatively. And what did that look like? Sure. Absolutely. I can look back and and see a few moments that I've reflected on, you know, you know, later in life and and I thought, wow, those, those were more significant than I realized at that mm-hmm. time. And I mean, I, I do remember when we lived in Korea, I was, I was four and five years old and we would do a lot of sightseeing, you know, when we lived there, we would go to a lot of different events and festivals. And I recall, I mean, the, the memories are, are pretty hazy, but I do remember going to a village and I think it was sort of a you know, a, a village that's representative of a of an earlier period in, in Korean history, sort of a folk village, you know. But I remember they had a big clay pit, you know, in this area of the, you know, the local potter would have been working and they had it roped off probably for safety. My brother and I, I remember, I, you know, remember we kind of climbed under, or I guess went under those ropes and, uh, and got some clay out of the clay pit, you know. So I, that's sort of a first early, early memory. I must've been four, four mm. years old, maybe five when that happened, but I, I can recall that. I can remember that. And maybe, I don't know. I like to think maybe I was fascinated with the medium at that point, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and, and drawn to, I do remember also when we lived in Virginia, this was much later or not, maybe just a few later, a few years later, maybe I was seven at that point. And underneath the deck out behind our house, just, you know, digging, playing with water, right. Playing with the hose and playing in the dirt as we all do. Mm-hmm. And discovering this little vein of clay and digging down and making things and setting them out under the dryer vent, you know, the, the exhaust vent uh-huh. of the dryer to uh, to be, quote unquote, fired, I guess, maybe just air dried, right? Yeah. But yeah, kind of realizing, I mean, I, I remember making a, a stand for a baseball that I had, you know, a little stand out of clay, I guess, just realizing, wow, this is a wonderful medium and you can create, you can make, you can work with this. And of course it wasn't until college when I really, I took a, you know, intro to ceramics class in my first year, we went to Berry college up in Rome, Georgia, mm-hmm. and had a wonderful professor there who really was still you know, working and, and creating so inspiring and really encouraging, but I fell in love with the medium then really. So maybe that was 
that love was awakened early on or little, you know, touches early on. And then, and then later just, you know, really fell in love with working with clay. And I've always, you know, when I started really exploring the medium in college and, and then eventually declared an art major and, and spent a lot more time working with clay, I was always drawn to an Asian aesthetic. And, and I almost wonder if that was sort of peaked early on with that clay pit in Korea. I don't know, <laughs> but isn't that amazing? How yeah. much our earliest, the earliest parts that we can't remember as much have such right. deep grooves in how we're formed and shaped. Right. I love that right. thinking of little Tim, you know, exploring into the clay and then digging up that Virginia clay vein and sculpting little things. I remember yes. getting that clay. I just can feel the texture of the red clay near a creek and my grandmother's and we would make little pinch pots and sit them in. Yes. You would think that Georgia sun in the middle of the hot summer would be right. hot enough to fire right. it. But right. I was always kind of miffed when it wouldn't yeah. stay, you know, it would get wet yeah. and try to hold water with it and it dissolve again. Right. Right. So even yeah. uh, that, you know, wasn't anywhere close to the thousands degrees you need in the kiln to actually. <laughs> right. Although, yeah, we, we think it might work, right? We expect it to. <laughs> yeah. That's all part of the process of discovery, right? right? I teach a I teach middle schoolers. I do an intro class in wheel throwing here at the international school that we're a part of. And I teach them a lot about those lessons that they'll learn from the clay, they'll learn from working with the clay, they'll learn the limits or or at least, you know, possibilities. Mm-hmm. And they'll learn a lot about failure, which is kind of that that point at which we're actually learning, you know, I, I tell our, our kids and also the students I work with that, you know, if you fail at something, it means you're, you're actually learning it. You know, you have that, that opportunity to be learning it right there. And then it's the time that, you know, if you, if you know it already, you know, you know, the answer already, you're not, you've already, you already have that content. You already know that. Right. Right. So, so hard to grasp that. I have a kid who, uh, well, uh, deal with it a lot that perfectionist in that sense mm-hmm. that I should already know this I should already know this and trying to right. help them with this is right. a learning opportunity this is our you know it's only when you make a mistake or you run into a problem is where you find the edges of what mm. you don't know yet and what you can learn mm-hmm. more of mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it's hard to get that early mentality of right. failure shame right. out of our minds Absolutely. It's yeah, it's at that edge of it. We're at the edge of discovery at that point, right? Mm -hmm. Which can be exhilarating and exciting. It can also be discouraging, Mm -hmm. but you need to keep going back to that place because that's where you learn. That is where you discover, right? That is where you discover unearth. I mean, let's let's use some clay analogies here, right? (laughs) Um, where you discover what what can be. So that's something I think I enjoy about the medium is that it it is fraught with with failure, even even in refined processes, there's still failure. A lot of variables, things can go wrong. Throughout history, there have been some kiln sites or ceramic communities that loss, you know, a hyper, what we would think of maybe a high percentage of loss is a part of their normal production process. Mm-hmm. They can expect maybe 60% of the pots to come out of the kiln, right? These firings. And that's just part of something they factor in those are wood firings perhaps. And mm-hmm. so, yeah. Mm. I like, uh, 
just nodding my head. I spent my evening with sandpaper sitting outside my studio because it's going to be getting mm. a lot colder. And I was like, I need to do this outside work. I've been putting it off yes. weeks because I had a disaster firing where all the glaze mm-hmm. had little pock, you know, popped air bubbles oh, right. on the surface of the glaze. Yes. And I just glared at them angrily <laughs> for weeks and yeah. finally worked up the kind of like, I'm going to sand these, you know, air holes down and I'm going to reglaze them and they probably won't turn out at this point, but I'm going to use them to experiment and just, you know, but yeah, trying to learn that that is I'm at a place where I can learn more. And I love that you really seem to embrace the science of Mm. the firing, the glaze formulating. Mm. Like I feel like you've got the potters that really love the chemistry and finding that out. And I'm, wish that I were more like that. I tend to be mm. a bit more like, oh, it's alchemy. You put it in the right. kiln and sometimes it just right. magically does what it's supposed to. And sometimes it doesn't. And I have no idea why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that's, yeah, there are so many avenues within the ceramic arts that you can really go down and spend a lot of time going down. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that's part of the learning process, mixing glazes and learning how glazes function Mm-hmm. what colorants work you know a lot of these are are earthen materials right that we're using and and that's wonderful too sort of discovering what ha- even what has been discovered you know centuries ago and is being used but understanding the science behind it mm-hmm. and i mean to be honest with you i still have a long way to go in in learning all of that and, <laughs> and but it's really fun it's fun to discover and then you have those yeah you have little successes along the way and you can build on those that's what keeps me coming back. I think perhaps my, my challenge and my problem is running down those little side trails, you know, maybe too far, you know, you gotta know when to come back and bring back what you've learned and keep walking forward. <laughs> I know. So anyway, yeah. Does it feels like, I wonder sometimes if you could zoom out on my creative work, you know, right. I, feel like I do, I run out and get these, it's almost like strings that I'm weaving right. together right. and it feels like these tangents that are random, but I'm sure if you can zoom out in the long run, it'll all weave together. And those trails I ran off on, you know, random things. And it does feel like even at this point, I can see where some of the Mm. excursions into just, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm curious and what happens if, and this is just Mm -hmm. a play thing Mm -hmm. I'm just doing for fun, but then it winds up being something that, you know, kind of lights me up and gets incorporated back in. Absolutely. And maybe it's fun. I mean, to use that trail analogy, sometimes we might find, hey, that that trail actually connects back with the main trail further down, you know, mm-hmm. or around this this mountain, or we've we've seen this view that we would have missed. Or yeah, I when I'm teaching, I I try to explain to the students that everything they're learning becomes a part of their toolbox or their their overall experience, and they may need to access that later, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that comes up with a lot of disciplines, right? Like the old, the, the age old, like, when am I going to use this math, you know? And, but of course there's so much more to helping to build our minds and to explore and to imagine. Yeah. You know, to, Process to problem solving that. Absolutely. And I think that's, you know, I, I, when I look at your work and your practice and even how you are encouraging others to put them in that place of play and discovery yeah, it's exciting, right? To be using materials and to discovering what can be done with them. And yeah, I saw a quote. I 
it was Einstein's the other day. I didn't realize he had said this, but it was something about play is the most mm. valuable form of research. I probably ah, it. but it's something great. like that. And I was like, all oh, right, I can hang my hat on that if, if Einstein's yes. saying it. But it if, I was going to say, if Einstein said that, the rest of us can take heed of that for sure. Yes, yeah. and it feels so <laughs> true because you really can access a different brain space where ideas can flow more freely if you can get in right. Feel right. that sense of playfulness return, which right. is so hard yeah. to access as an adult in this mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. oversaturated information-based world. Right. Yeah. And do we leave, do we leave margin for those what ifs or mm-hmm. or what if I try this? And yeah, often we're we're limited in time or resources. And yeah, what does it look like to kind of give ourselves that margin, that space to ask those questions, you know, to explore those different options. You know, I, I remember one thing that our professor said in, in college was, hey, you know, if you don't have any tests in a firing, it's a wasted firing. Mm. You know, and of course, what he meant by that was you're you have the opportunity to learn something new beyond what you already know. Right. To learn something new, to try something, to discover something. And if, you know, you know, firings are few and far between, right? Because you need to have a lot of work to fill the kiln. They're expensive. They take time. Mm-hmm. And so when you, when you have a firing, use it, use it for that opportunity also to discover new possibilities. So I've, I've thought about that often too, you know, yeah. always putting new glaze tests in or something to discover. Yeah. Sometimes I, they're, they're terrible. They don't work, but that, then you've learned like that didn't work. <laughs> so, I have like an entire, yeah. I have this whole collection of pieces I do that have mm. this butterfly design. Okay. Right. Drawn with underglaze pencil and then painted with, you know, like 13 different glazes and right, right. Peaches yeah. and oranges and yellows. It takes a ridiculous amount of time, but they're so fabulous. And it was born out of this, piece that was kind of a random piece of like, what am I going to do with that? I don't even know. I just was experimenting. I guess I'm just going to like, this is a nothing piece, right? I'm going to just right. play on it and stick it in the fire in the kiln and see, right. you know, like splattered yes. some green glaze on the inside and doodled this butterfly and had some glazes out. So, and it's just by, by far a favorite piece. And so Great. many of the pieces that yeah. I can think of in recent firings that were my goof off just have fun on a random thing and stick it in there have grown into whole collections so i love that's that that's great that's a good good example mm-hmm. of that happening absolutely well i wanted to ask you a question about something that i had seen on your instagram lately one of your it was a table i think that you were using the kintsugi mindy yes. fit on that was my second episode of the podcast Okay, original great. episodes was on Kintsugi and can we bring that kind of mending to our wounded places of our heart? So it's very right. near and dear to me. And it's been one of the most popular episodes. I know people are so drawn to that. One of the images is a street paving, like a uh, yes. out in the street with gold in it. Did you yes. do that? So I did, but actually it was a it was a conceptual mock-up. So it oh. was that was added in Photoshop, you know, just to kind of give myself some, an idea of what, what could be, what, what it could look like. Yeah. Yeah. So for those who aren't familiar with Kintsuki, it is a Japanese art form, a practice, and it really emerged around the time of the, of the tea ceremony as well, around, you know, 1600s in Japan. And the story goes that one of the Japanese rulers 
had a, a prize T-bowl that was broken and it was sent back to China, I believe, to be mended. And it was repaired with staples, came back with metal staples, sort of binding the, the pieces back together. And I think that sort of spurred on Japanese artisans as well to be considering possibilities for restoring these vessels. In the tea ceremony and also just in, in Japanese antiquities or in, in artifacts and then from, from antiquity, a lot of what what gave tea vessels such such value was the antiquity of it, right? The the story of it, the the age of it, but then also who it belonged to, what the story was, and who who used that. And so these vessels were prized and really, you know, they they really cared a great deal for these for these tea vessels. And so when they would get broken, they wouldn't just be discarded, right? They would be restored. And so the Kintsuki process emerged around that time, and it's been refined over the years as well. But essentially, it uses a sap from the Urushi tree, which grows in Japan. Ironically, or at least interestingly, Urushi is part of the, the toxic family of poison ivy and poison mm. sumac. And so the Urushi sap can cause that type of reaction. It can cause you know, contact dermatitis, which is not, which is not fun. So it's actually a very refined art form, uh, one that in which the, the artisans need to be quite careful unless they have that natural immunity to it. Some people do. Yeah. So you mix the arushi with clay or with, in some processes with, with flour, like wheat flour and create a paste, which then allows you to uh, epoxy, essentially epoxy these these pieces back together of a vessel. And then later, once that has cured, it cures in humidity, it can take a week to you know many months even. And once that has cured, another fine line of urushi is added to that crack. And then usually a, a gold or even a silver powder is sprinkled onto that onto that urushi and becomes a part of the, of the vessel. I think, you know, I, I think I first saw my first uh, image of a Kintsuki vessel, maybe about 10 years ago. And it just sort of struck me, right. I just, you see this broken vessel, you know, if you think about in the West and maybe if we can draw a comparison between our own culture, which we know, right. And then maybe some Eastern or some West or some Asian, if you will, values, but it's interesting that, you know, super glue is clear, right? <laughs> we want to mend things and hide them. Like the, the idea of, you know, a broken ceramic piece, we would use clear super glue. It's strong, it bonds well, and you don't see it. Mm-hmm. You don't notice the cracks, it's restored. But then you have this Eastern art form that takes that vessel and restores it, but then it highlights the cracks mm-hmm. and it highlights them in gold. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in our Christian faith, which we share, that is a really clear representation of the restorative nature of the gospel, mm-hmm. right? That we're, we're fractured, we're broken. We're, you know, maybe even worthy of being cast, <laughs> cast off. And yet we're restored. We're brought back to wholeness, right? Mm-hmm. And our fractures are highlighted, Mm-hmm. highlighted by by God's grace. And so, you know, Japan is an amazing nation and a lot of Japanese art forms are built around yeah, the idea of, you know, wabi-sabi, this, you know, even, you know, these 
juxtaposed values, even, you know, like in Kintsuki, you have, right, the broken, beautiful, right? The beautiful, broken, and the broken, beautiful kind of interplaying together. And so I think that resonates not with just the Christians, of course, but it certainly does draw our attention to our own faith and helps us reflect on on what we hold dear. So all that to say, it's such a- um, yeah, yeah, just kind of seeing those those broken paving stones on the street, you know, Bangkok streets are, uh, there's a lot happening, right? Cracks and mm. loose bricks and you got to watch after it rains because some of the bricks will squirt water up on you if you're, oh. if you're walking over them. So I just thought, you know, what, what if, uh, yeah, what if there was, you know, a chance to do something similar? I'm not going to use Urushi on the street, right? But um, maybe some epoxy, gold, gold epoxy to kind of be an interesting take on, on urban graffiti, right? To be mending oh some God. of these streets or these walls. Anyway, that's what that was. Just conceptual. I thought, that anyway, was, I thought yeah, it was such no. a powerful, powerful imagery. You know, and, mm. and yeah, you wouldn't use the, you know, very tedious and expensive, meticulous right. and gold, but the reference to something being, you know, honored with that kind of care and bring, bringing yes. that kind of beauty to something that's seen as you just, you walk on it, it's broken and it doesn't matter. It just, yeah, right. I think it touches a really deep part of all of us. And I mm. think, you know, I've always seen that beautiful connection with the wabi-sabi and the kintsugi, mm. you know, it does, it points to the God that I love. It's not the God mm. that says you need to try harder and harder to mm. be perfect like me. Mm. It's the God who says, I see you, I'm coming to be with you in this place of, you know, things you can't do enough. You aren't perfect enough. I'm going to sit with you here in this and right. I'm going to bring beauty into the brokenness. Yes, um, It is just to, mm. to have somebody who has scars from love. Right. Um, right. It is Absolutely. a beautiful, beautiful yeah. thing. Right. Yeah. And then even thinking of, you know, just the highlighting of, of those cracks, you know, that, that exhibit and kind of show God's grace. Mm-hmm. And often, you know, from what I understand, you know, when those vessels are restored, that those, those broken portions, you know, that, that side of the vessel is, is really the one that's displayed, the one that's shown, you know, the one that's honored, you know, the tea ceremony, the, the sort of the, the highly honored part of the vessel will be facing the tea practitioner or the tea master as the tea is prepared. And then it's, when it's received, the bowl is turned and it's turned towards the one that, that then consumes from it. So the, you know, the, the vessels themselves are appreciated by the uh, participants in the tea ceremony. You know, you take time to observe the bowl and to be drawn into its, uh, its beauty, which I love. I love that. <laughs> I love that yeah. all thought that, you know, and even thinking about a, a Kintsuki, uh, you know, restored vessel being used in a, in a tea ceremony, how much more powerful is that, right? To even consider our own brokenness and yet something that's been restored and then is being honored. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I could go on. <laughs> no, it's so beautiful. So, and I, I have always, always loved the, the ritual and the ceremony and the experience of like of tea. I mean, for me, when I was little, I would have a friend over my window was on our porch. And so we could climb out the window of my bedroom onto the porch and I would set up 
you know, a little table and we would go out there with, I had a few little teacups I'd collected. And this is of course, Mm. English China. But as I got older and heard about the tea ceremony, I think it just called to my heart. And I've been realizing more and more how much my love of creating pottery and ceramics and functional vessels Mm. is connected to the power that I sense in ritual kind of those practices physically embodying an experience that is kind of symbolizing something deeper that's going on there. There's not as much of that in our culture here in the West and my heart longs for that. Yes. Yeah. I mean, the, the tea ceremony emerged in a time in Japan's history where, you know, as there always is, right. There's, there's war, there's conflict, there's, you know, people are separated in, in different ways, social class, you know, economic and so on, powerful and weak. But the, the tea ceremony is fascinating. One, one aspect of it was that it was bringing different classes together. Mm. In fact, the, some of the tea houses were constructed where the doors were very low. And so you would enter on your knees right. and you would, you would move to, a, to your, your spot in the tea house and in the tea ceremony space itself, the posture that you enter in is on your knees. Mm-hmm. And even such that the uh, samurai would need to take off their swords, you know, they come in unarmed. And I, if I remember correctly, I think the show, you know, the Shogun rulers were, were starting to outlaw the tea ceremony because it was allowing for the, the community to come together outside of some of these barriers that had been in mm-hmm. place. So it was considered dangerous and subversive. <laughs> so pretty fascinating to think about that. You know, yeah. when we look at it from the outside in, it looks you know, very peaceful and tranquil and a time to, to rest and to think mm-hmm. and to honor, to be honored. You know, a big, a big part of the tea ceremony for the tea master is that the, the participants feel relaxed and that they enjoy you know, there's, there's a lot more to it, but the, the flowers that are selected, the, the scroll that is used, usually there's some sort of hidden theme that you can find in, in the ceremony that's sort of a part of an overall thematic. So anyway, it is fascinating. And there's a lot more to learn about it too. I hope I haven't missed anything or, or at least um, misspoken on anything, but I do have a few friends here that have really spent years practicing tea and they would never say they're a tea master, right? Just Uh because it it takes a lot, it takes a lifetime. Right. And I do have two Japanese friends who both live in, in Japan. One is in Yokohama and one is in Hiroshima and they're both tea practitioners. And I've had the honor of learning some about tea from both of them through the years and even being a part of some tea ceremony workshops or classes here, you know, where they're um, one of them, the the friend from Hiroshima has, has helped classes here to, to teach tea, the way of tea. And so that's been amazing and fascinating to be a part of and just to observe. And you realize there's so much to learn. Every, every movement has meaning. Every movement is practiced and refined. And even the, the number of steps that they take on the tatami mats as they enter the tea room and it's 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 a beautiful art form in and of itself so yeah enjoy um has having the experience to be in that tea ceremony witnessing it being a part of it has it shifted your approach to making Mm. Mm. your objects 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I just read something recently. I, again, Jane, I feel like I'm learning so much. And I think maybe you you come at different points in life, you come to a place where something happens that you realize, wow, I don't really know that much. <laughs> but you think, well, I'm thankful for what I've learned and what I've picked up along the way, but here's a whole other avenue that I need to hear. So for example, I, you know, years ago, probably 11 years ago now, I asked one of these friends, the the friend that lives in Yokohama, I was at a gathering with her in New York, and I, I was asking her, what what are some characteristics of a tea bowl that are, you know, prized or appreciated? And, you know, as a ceramic artist, I'm just, I'm learning about form and trying to emulate what I see. And, but it was fascinating to hear from, from one who practices tea and, and works with tea bowls. And, you know, I learned early on that they're, they're hand-built, they're hand-formed, not wheel-thrown. Mm-hmm. Now, some are wheel-thrown and and they're, you know, wonderful tea vessels. And you have different types for, you know, the more closed form would be for the cooler cooler seasons, you know, that keeps the tea hotter. And the more open forms would be for the warmer periods where the, the tea can breathe more and, and mm-hmm. cool a bit faster. But Anyway, I, I've appreciated, yeah, I guess we, we can think like who, who are the people in our lives that are there with great experience and knowledge that we really just need to ask some questions of and learn from, right? To kind of put ourselves in that place of learning from them. And I've, yeah, I've just been grateful for people like, like those two that have really helped me learn. And I'm still learning. I'm still learning. So I have another, I have a Thai friend that really has just jumped into the, the world of tea and the way of tea. And she has a, a Japanese tea house here and I'll visit it from time to time. And she's always gushing about the latest, you know, matcha or this green tea that she has. And you got to try this, you got to try this. And mm-hmm. that's fun too. When you have people that are so passionate about something, you just need to be in the same room with them and, and appreciate their passion, <laughs> you know, yes. and learn and learn from it. So I know yeah. I do. I think it is It's so powerful to just follow delight. You know, I think mm. it's hard when sometimes people get so disconnected from their ability to, to know what they mm-hmm. love and mm-hmm. to be unabashed about it. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's really delightful yeah. to be around somebody who has a passion, who has something they love mm. and they're overflowing with it. Even mm. if it's not something that you share, just seeing them light up over it and I don't know. It is. It's, it shapes you. Mm, absolutely. And I think it can, it can awaken or reawaken mm-hmm. something in us, which I think is important. And that's, you know, kind of the question I've asked myself before. And I ask a lot is why, why do I make pots? You know, <laughs> there was a, there was a, a college. Yeah. So two college professors really that were in the art department when I was studying at Barry and the one that was Dr. Jerry Likens, Professor Jerry Likens. And he was an amazing, amazing professor. And I really am indebted to him and just appreciate his craft and his life. He really awakened in me a desire to make pots, to make vessels. The other professor taught painting and drawing. I'd be working late in the studio at night and he would like poke his head in the door. He'd say, making pots, making pots. And he's almost like the shining, you know, like this face coming in the door, like making pots. I think about that a lot. Yeah, I'm making pots. I'm making pots. But the question, deeper question is why? Why am I making 
And why, why do we create? Like, what do we create for? So it's a good question to go back to often because it takes time. It takes resources. It takes intention, intentionality, right? To kind of move toward our craft. And I think for me, one thing is I just feel this, this innate desire to create, to make. My thought is that, you know, looking at our faith, right? And kind of drawing from God's creation of all things and that the, the Bible speaks toward humanity being made in the image of God, right? Being created and breathed into, life breathed into us. And so I, you know, I believe that humans bear, you know, we, we bear the image of our creator. And, and part of that plays out in our desire, this innate desire to make, to create, to leave a mark, to say a word, to experience this created world and, and to speak into it, you know, through words, through various media. Anyway, so I go back to that a lot. And I, and I think the other part of that question is, my hope is that what I make would encourage other people in that as well, that they, it would awaken something in them. You know, you think about our senses, right? How we experience the world around us. And you know, that we would taste and touch and smell, hear, you know, just experience, mm-hmm. right? All of these things and, and be drawn, be drawn to them. So that's what I think, you know, the arts, the creative arts, the visual arts, and so on, they they remind us of that. They kind of remind us that we're human. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's a there's a cultural critic, theologian, Ken Myers. And I think if I'm quoting him correctly in, in some book or lecture somewhere along the way he said culture is what we make of the world in both senses Mm. and i like that you know kind of what we what we understand the world around us to be how we experience it how we step into it but also what we then take and and create from it or or make and arrange and yeah express through what we've been given so anyway I, i that's a question i go back to a lot why do i do this and Part of it is I have, I have to, <laughs> and then I think, I think we also, we feel our creator's pleasure, right? When we, when we love what we're doing and what he's given us to do. Mm-hmm. We're participating, become a participant exactly. in the right. creative world and the creative process. And yeah, it's like a dance with the creator to mm-hmm. play in that mm-hmm. way. I love that quote by Ken Myers. I'm going to have to grab onto that one. I've been preparing to help teach my daughter's kindergarten class. The parents take turns doing that every so often. And I'll be teaching on Grandma Moses. So I get a chance right. to dress up like her and teach folk art. But the quote that I kept seeing as I researched her was, life is what you make of it. Always has been, always will be. So yes, mm. culture is what you make of it in yeah. all senses yeah. of the word. And it is, I think, as artists, it's not often a highly paying job, but I think the value to the world at large is very high indeed to mm. be one who is, you know, adding, adding to the world, making of culture with creativity, with beauty, bringing goodness and truth into ways that we experience with our body instead of just straight to our intellect, I guess. Yes. Well, as we wrap up, 
this is, I've really, there have been so many things you've said that I'm like, oh, I want to hear more about that. Like kind of, (laughs) you know, from one potter to another. But as we wrap up the interview session, I like to ask people sometimes to share a creative tool, a favorite creative tool. It can be one Hmm. you've been using lately. You can take tool as broadly as you like, but is there a favorite creative tool? If someone works with clay, you know, there are many, many tools or a woodworker also would know there are myriad tools used for different processes. I think through my study of the ceramic arts, I've I've realized different times, like, oh, it'd be great if I had something that did this, right? Or I find myself doing this a lot and it would be nice to have something that could help with that. Mm -hmm. And there's not something that exists or it's too expensive. And so I, throughout, you know, the last 20 years, I've been been making a lot of tools, which is Mm -hmm. fun. Even more fun if you find, you know, a little piece of scrap wood or something, you can try something out. So anyway, the latest thing I think I made that's a little bit more of a um, a piece of equipment, I guess, is um, I'm, I'm doing some slip casting, which is basically working with liquid clay and, and plaster molds. Mm-hmm. But they have these large, very expensive slip pumps. You know, they have a, a motor, electric motor and pump, and they have a big tank for the slip and everything. They're, they're quite expensive, I'm sure, in the thousands of dollars. And so I thought, well, it'd be helpful to have something like that. So I just, you know, use a, a trash can and a hose and a couple of valves. And so now I can mix, mix up a big, a big batch of slip in this, you know, pretty good sized trash can. And then it's elevated. So you've got free uh, pressure. I don't need an electric pump. It's elevated. So I've got yeah. gravity to help. So anyway, it really, it actually works. Like it works and it works well. Yes. And so that's <laughs> maybe like a, a, a more recent tool that I'm, that I'm, excited about but you know sometimes the most simplest of tools are wonderful you know chamois is great for using when you're throwing and uh yeah i just saw somewhere someone had taken a little piece of chamois taken a wine cork Mm -hmm. and just you know screwed the chamois to the wine cork and they just drop it in their throwing water Mm -hmm. so it's always there it's always moist and it's always floating on the top of their throwing water you know like how simple is that but it's ingenious at the same time. I so anyway. I think that's yeah. one of the things that I have always found so endearing about ceramics. I mean, I did as much time in my art major with painting and drawing and figure drawing, but ceramics has just had my heart because I think that there's, it's so resourceful and, you know, like just finding yes. ways and make scrappy kind of making things happen. And right. I mean, right. we're just working with dirt from the ground. I know. <laughs> I know I took I started my journey with pottery in um, a man's he was an art teacher in my hometown, but he also did pottery twice a week in the evenings in his basement. And Mm. he, I mean, he had created so many tools, but he always put his chamois on a fishing bobber, the little. Oh, right. Yeah. Great. If the little floaty thing, you right, right. Well, yeah. fishing rod. So, so I did. It was like, oh, of course you don't want it to get lost in with all the slip. And I was like, oh, yeah. that's how it's done. Perfect. And, I love it. But I, I don't have it. one of those around. So now I'm going to use a wine cork because mine. Well, is- if I if I was there, I'd I'd send one over to you, Jane. Maybe I need to <laughs> send one through the mail. Well, <laughs> but yeah, they're easy to make. They're easy to make. Actually, what you can do is go. Yeah, go get a chamois. Go get a bunch of wine corks. And just make them for all your Potter friends. They'll love you for it. So that's right. Yeah, that's a perfect, perfect <laughs> gift. Well, this has been such a treat, and absolutely, just really appreciate you coordinating times from all the way across the world and sharing some of your yeah. Yeah. your story of 
your craft. Certainly. Thank you for, for setting this up and, and for the conversation. It's been encouraging. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I feel honored to think of you spending this time with me. I hope that you'll share the podcast with a friend. If you feel like it's worth your time listening in, maybe they'd enjoy it too. If growing authentic creativity and developing more sustainable creative practices and rhythms is something that you want more of, or you're interested in the art that I make, I'd love it if you would subscribe to my email newsletter. Another way to get a little more personable is to connect on Instagram. I enjoy showing up from time to time in Instagram stories and just sharing behind the scenes and moment by moment thoughts throughout my life as a creator. And I'd love to get to know you more and hear from you. So reach out anytime through email or through Instagram DMs. And I would like to thank the sound editor for this podcast, Shepard Martin. And the music is by Sad Moses. Once again, keep growing creative.